One realizes very quickly we've been seeing this technology for decades. I had access to, to all those programs. Surfaces, no obvious signs of propulsion, and yet this object is witnessed now by four separate individuals and two separate aircraft. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back to the first show post Christmas, I suppose. I hope everyone's well. And I hope you had a great holiday period so far. I don't know if some of you are still enjoying your time off or not. Um, but yeah, so we're here and we're here. We're going to be talking about earth lights tonight. Now, this is something that uh, is quite new to me. Um, I've only been looking at it since my trip to Colombia at the start of 2022. So it's a whole different aspect of the phenomena that has uh, taken up a lot of time for me. And it's been really fascinating. I'm currently reading this book here, Earth Lights Revelation by Paul Devereaux. With David Clark as part of it as well. So we can uh, discuss parts of that. But we're going to be looking at various cases, but primarily focusing on one case, the Longdendale Lights, which is uh, an area not too far from where I live here in Sheffield. It's between Sheffield and Manchester. Um, but we'll get into that. But before that, I'll just say, please, as always, in the chat, keep it polite, calm, cool, collected, all that good stuff. Um, and let's not waste any more time, guys. Thank you for all for being here. And now I'd like to welcome, again, Dr. David Clark. Dave, how are you? Fine. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. It, are we still in Christmas or midwinter solstice, whatever you want to call it? Well, yeah, don't tell anyone, but I actually took my tree down today. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hassle. Yeah, you're yeah, supposed to do that on it. the 12th night, Vinny. I know, I know. It'd be bad but... luck if you take it down too early. Well, maybe no presents for me next year then. <laughs> but listen, thank you so much, as always, for being here. I really do appreciate it. Um, you always give a good insight into the conversations that we have. So I think before I ask my first question, I just, you know, I've been looking into earth lights and uh, associated phenomena for getting on for a year now. And there's a lot out there to look at. Um, but Paul Devereaux, the book that I just showed, you know, he's obviously been at the forefront of this for a long time. And I just want to read a little quote that i I found that of his that kind of doesn't cover it all, but it, it resonated a bit with me. So it says, what are earth lights? Well, they certainly have electrical and magnetic attributes and some form of plasma is assumed. Modern witnesses who come close to earth lights typically report hallucinatory episodes, suggesting magnetic fields that are known to be able to affect parts of the brain. One thing that has struck me in poring over witness reports from different periods of time and parts of the world is the similarity of descriptions stating that earthlights sometimes behave as if they have a rudimentary intelligence, like inquisitive animals. Intriguingly, it was fairly recently announced that scientists in Romania had created laboratory plasmas that they observed behaving exactly like living cells. And long before them, the late David Bohm, who was recognized as laying the foundations of plasma physics, observed that once electrons were in a plasma, they stopped behaving like individuals and started behaving as if they were part of a larger and interconnected whole. He remarked that he frequently had the impression that the sea of electrons was in some sense alive. And that's Paul Devereaux. And like I said, he's done so much work on it. And obviously you've been, I mean, met him, worked with him, all these things. So let's take it right back to when this sort of area of the phenomena first came onto your radar. And yeah go from there thank you yeah i don't know this is really this is like doing an archaeology of how i got interested in the subject because <laughs> it was from a number of different things i mean i read um charles fort's books for start starters and that must have been early 1980s when i started subscribing to 14 times magazine which is as you know still still running today under dave sutton's editorship and um Charles Fort in, I think it's Low, his second book, which was published in no, 1910 or 1920, as far back as that. He he was someone who, who spent 
months and months, years of his of his time combing through old newspapers and magazines, and he'd found a whole um, collection of stories about mysterious lights that haunted certain locations that appeared over and over again, and in some cases um, took their names from these mysterious lights. You know, like um, there's numerous examples we can mention around the world, like the Martha lights, the Hestalen lights, and Charles Fort mentioned several of these in in Britain. One of one of which is from your neck of the woods, Vinnie, down at um, in Warwickshire, the Burton Dasset ghost. Yeah. Um, if if you if you Google that, someone wrote a, a small book about it recently. But that was an outbreak of lights in this area in the Cotswolds in the 1920s, uh, and it was basically a, a what today we would call a UAP. Um, a light that rose out of the ground and sort of travelled around this sort of isolated village and it was seen sending beams of light to the ground. People went out uh, at night sort of looking for it and it got into the national newspapers and reporters travelled to this uh, tiny little hamlet in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and, and quite a few of them saw this light and couldn't explain it. I mean, it wasn't a structured craft or anything. It was something that seemed to sort of rise up out of the ground, split into smaller lights that moved around and sent beams to the ground and then vanished in a flash. Um, and you can see why people who perhaps saw these things thought they were seeing a ghost or an apparition or something of that kind. And I got interested in, in the subject. Uh, at the time, I was, a, I, was, I, was doing a, um, I was a student at Sheffield University. I was doing archaeology. And I was interested in the connection of these lights with ancient landscapes, with stone circles and sacred places. Um, and the more I looked at these stories, the more I looked into the folklore of mysterious lights. And I, I, I mean, you, anyone doing a bit of research can find there are numerous examples. Um, they were known as Will of the Wisp or Jack-O-Lantern. And virtually every area of the British Isles has got stories about them and often um, these lights are seen around certain places and they are seen year after year after year. So, and and way before all the things that cause UFO sightings nowadays or IFOs, you know, aeroplanes and meteorological balloons, people were seeing lights well before there were planes, well before there were helicopters. So what was it that they were seeing? And, and, and the traditional explanation was in when we got to the age of science and the enlightenment was that these weren't spirits. They were um, natural phenomena, things caused by um, marsh gas, for instance. That was the classic example that marshy areas, you got sort of methane bubbling up, um, getting a, some kind of ignition was going on. And that's what was creating these mysterious lights moving around. And it's some really bizarre explanations, including there was one um, explanation um, that it was barn owls that had got infected with like a luminous fungus when they were sort of nesting in trees. And people were actually seeing these mysterious moving lights and what they were were these luminous owls. That was the most bizarre explanation. <laughs> but, you know, they're similar to the sort of bizarre explanations that people come up with for UAP sightings today. Yeah. So, that, so I, I just got immersed in all this stuff and I published a little booklet when I was a student in the mid 1980s. And that's how I came to meet Paul Devereux because I think he, he came across the research that I'd um, published. And he at the time was involved in this thing called the Dragon Project, which I think is still ongoing, where teams of people were, were going to ancient stone circles. I mean, the Rollwright stones in Oxfordshire is the, the one yeah. where, where they were based. And they'd found all these weird magnetic anomalies. So Paul at that time was working on this theory earth lights uh, he called them earth lights but it was it was something that he picked up from reading um stories um about research that had been done by geologists into what was known as the piezoelectric effect and this was yeah. um people may have seen some of these some of the footage where um in, in laboratories where they've crushed quartz bearing rock and all these lights are seen zooming around in the laboratory now if that is happening um, in the landscape where you've got massive um, earth movements, you've got um, faults in the earth's crust, you've got mini earthquakes going on. So the th the idea is, is that this is what is creating some of these mysterious lights. 
Yeah, and Paul, you know, he does present all of these different theories still in his books and his work, and oh. it just does seem to be that across all these more known cases like Hess Darlin and and things that they still haven't sort of formed a hundred percent conclusions on what these things are, and I think I find that really fascinating that it's been actually been studied by scientists, but still little is known about it. And you did mention there oh. before we move on. Sorry, I wanted to show this is that Paul did. Uh, write a really good article I came across about strange lights and sacred sites, which if I just share my screen, people can just see the. So if you read through this, this is it's a really, really detailed article and it goes into a lot of depth. I've linked it in the description of the uh, YouTube video below. But yeah, Paul's work, it's just incredible. Um, and yeah, you helped him out over the over the years as well. So, And I think that was more on more local to this area. Cases, yeah. Wasn't yeah, and Earthlight's Revelation, which is he, he did a book um, called Just Earthlights. I think that was mm. published early in nineteen nineteen eighties. And again, I must have read that when it was published, and that would have been about nineteen eighty two, eighty three. So I could all these different things were coming together in my mind. And then um, I was involved in this um, um, a group in West Yorkshire, UFO group. But we got more and more interested in collecting these stories about these Earthlights, and we did a. What was known as Project Pennine, where we did yeah. lots of archive research. We, went, we looked in all the sort of local archives for, for for these kinds of stories. Collected a lot of stuff together. Did lots of interviews with people. This is how I came across the Longdendale lights. And then Paul um, used all the material that we gathered. And there's a whole chapter in Earthlight's Revelation on Project Pennine, where we look at all the different areas of the north of England where there are these long traditions. Um, of these mysterious lights that, that go way back into folklore. Um, so you get stories about witchcraft, you get stories about will-o'-the-wisps, you get stories about um, ghosts and phantoms. But when you actually dig down into what, how these stories originated, what was it that people were seeing, usually it's just weird balls of light and mysterious light phenomena that people have seen. And they were, they were describing what they saw in the the uh, the the language of the era because this is way before um, UFOs, flying saucers, any of these modern terms. So they used um, traditional um, folklore to 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 describe what it was that they'd experienced, and some people described what they'd seen as like in terms of like fairy beliefs, you know, fairy rings of dancing fairies, that kind of thing. Other people described it as will of the wisp, but. Ultimately, what people were seeing was was some kind of luminous phenomena, UAP. We would call it today. Yeah, that's it. It's just a sign of the times and mm. of what they label it as, I suppose. Mm. Uh, yeah, fascinating. I've got a great question here from Elena. Do you have any theories about the varying color shifts and their potential cause or purpose? Yeah, that's a, that, that, yeah. It's just because there are so many different colours involved in in these um, in these uh, reports. Um, I think the, um, the, the 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 theories about them being created by marsh gas, um, which is um, caused by um, methane bubbling out of um, um, ponds and areas where you've got decaying um, vegetable and animal matter. I think there's there's the colours there are supposed to be green and red that people see, but you also get accounts of, of white lights, like motorcycle headlights is a very common description in some of these um, stories. And, and they're, they're sometimes, particularly in America, they're described as spook lights. Yeah. Um, so you've got a you've got ghost lights, spook lights, will o' the wisp, but every colour um, in the spectrum has been reported um, from different parts of the world. And this came into the um, the business with the Longdendale lights because of that being like a mountainous area where you've got um, different mountain rescue teams who are responsible for um, responding to calls, people in distress. And I remember interviewing the, uh, the, the, the rescue team uh, leader, Phil Shaw, back in the 1990s, and he was saying that... Um, if you if you're if you're out on the moors and you're part of a hiking party or somebody who's bivying out out there, that if you were in distress and you needed rescuing, there's, a, there's people would normally light off a flare and it would be a red flare. That's what they would be expecting 
um, to receive a report about. But he said the reports of these Longdendale lights, they were never red. They were always sort of green or blue or something like that, which is something people lost on the moors who, who had flares would not be let, not be firing off. So the, the colour thing is a real puzzle. It is, and because you, you mentioned like the marshes and things, but and then mm. you went on to the mountainous, and you know, Hestalen, for example, no, not really any marshes. It's cold no. and desolate, and you know, high. And same in Colombia where we were, and, and the lights there, we saw predominantly white lights, like you said, the motorcycle headlight, but with a bit of red and blue, which you know, some people will see that as like red shift and blue shift, which is getting into a whole different realm of uh yeah. physics and stuff maybe but let's let's you know you mentioned longdale let's jump into into longdale because this is kind of the, the really interesting case we we're going to talk about yep. so where do we start with that and please tell me to bring up any of the images and stuff as well well um the longdale thing came um came to my attention um as a result of doing the work on project pennine because i think what happened was there was a there's a group team of about three of us again i've said this before I've, I've always been involved in like little teams of people who've sort of done this kind of research and i think it was um andy roberts and martin douglas um who, and we worked on this project pennine thing we wrote off um to all the mountain rescue teams in the north of england saying have you ever been called out to um report some mysterious lights you know that you were reported to you via the police as people in distress and but turned out to be not um pe uh, not rescue um incidents or or accidents or things like that and the, the the team that came back straight away was the glossop one saying yes um we've got a whole log of incidents going back to the 1960s or 70s of these things that are called the longdendale lights and like you Vinny, i mean at the time I mean, I was pretty well versed in all the sort of UFO sightings and ghost st stuff from from this, this area, Sheff between Sheffield and Manchester, but I'd never heard of this. So I just I, I, I then sort of spent a lot of time doing field work in that um, in that area, and it's not I've described it as remote, but it's not really remote in in sort of North American standards. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's, I mean, anyone who knows the North of England, it's it's. The two big cities of Sheffield and Manchester, I mean, literally like 30 miles apart, but you've got the Peak District National Park, which was um, the very first national park um, to be declared a national park in England. And I think that was in the 1950s. So even though you've got these two massive cities with mil millions of people on either side, the bit in between, particularly that zone um, up on the Snake Pass, as it's called, um, where you've got Kinder Scout. Um, Bleaklow and Blackhill, which are all sort of like big sort of peak-covered mountains. And they've just got tiny little roads that sort of link Sheffield and Manchester, one of which is known as the Snake Pass, which goes right over the top of the moors. And then there's another one called Woodhead, which is sort of not really a motorway, but it's the nearest we've got to a, a proper dual carriageway linking the two cities. And as it drops into Manchester, you go into the Longdendale Valley, and there's like all these... Um, reservoirs in the bottom, electricity pylons, and although you're driving into a really populous area, there's very, very few people who actually live in Longdendale. I think there's, you know, no more than a couple of hundred people, and they're mainly sort of farmers. These are sort of really upland, moorland um, farms where you've you've got very few people, and apart from the traffic that's going backwards and forwards, there's, there's not all that many people around at night, and there's certainly no one up on the top of the moors and if you do go hiking, as I've done um, many, many times um, during the um, the course of the year, when you get up onto the top of Kinderscout and Bleaklow, you would not think you were 30 miles from Sheffield or from the centre of Manchester. You, you could be in the middle of that nowhere. You know, you'll see you'll see hikers and climbers, but um, very, very few people. You, you you could be you could be in the middle of Scotland or anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm just going to bring up this image, which uh, is the the Longdon Trail is kind of where you can hike. But this image is a sign showing the path and it kind of gives an idea of of what you're talking about. So you've kind of got this long, thin, yeah, you know, reservoir with the kind of the two peaks coming up either side here. So, you know, that's where the lights are, have been seen. Is that right? 
yeah, the the lights are mainly seen on the south side um, of Longdendale. So you've got um, the what's known as the Bleaklow Massif, which is a hu this huge area um, down at the the bottom right hand corner of this map you're showing there. And the and it's um, it's it's like walking in chocolate cake when you're on the top. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's nothing there, but there is um, there is a large mound known as Torside Castle, which is thought to be um, some kind of burial mound or barrow. <clears throat> and it's quite interesting that when these um, sightings have been caught, have, have been sort of um, plotted on a map, they all seem to congregate in this area around Torside Castle, and there's like a big rocky edge that you can see from the bottom of the valley called Brahma Edge. And interestingly, because you find a lot of these stories um, turning up in local place names, there's actually an area called Shining Clough, which is really interesting because this is where some of these lights have been seen. And I interviewed a, a guy called Sean Wood, who is a, a teacher and a musician. And he lives in a, um, a big Gothic house called um, Bleak House, which is very, very <laughs> bleak. And it's as you're dropping into um, the main part of the valley near the near the, um, the where the Torside Reservoir is, um, and he's lived there in this quite isolated build, um, building for something like fifteen or twenty years. And um, I remember him saying that he didn't know anything about the Longdendale lights. And he, he one one night, winter night, he was um, he was sat in the in the back room and the, the main windows face shining Clough and Brahma Edge, and he. he he kept seeing this light shining through the window, and he thought it was someone playing a prank in that it was someone who stopped by the side of this really busy road and, and, and somehow managed to get to the front of his house and was shining a torch, you know, some, some kind of prank. And he went out and looked through the window, and there's this massive ball of light hovering over the, um, the hillside opposite. And he went outside, looked at it, couldn't believe his eyes, and his next-door neighbours... This is how isolated he was. Was the the youth hostel at Croden, which is about <clears throat> three or four miles down the valley. So, wow. um, they were his neck near neighbours. There was no one else other than farmers living anywhere near. So he phoned up the the Croden youth hostel and spoke to um, the the manager there. And this person said, "Yeah, we're all outside watching it as well. What is it?" So <laughs> that was the first time he'd he'd seen the Longdendale lights, and, and since then, I think over a twenty year period he's seen them i don't know 30 or 40 times but right. um every time they're different because sometimes it's like a searchlight coming out of the hillside at other times it's like a string of moving lights um sometimes it's just like one light that rises from the ground and this is this is why um the mountain rescue team have been involved because people who are unfamiliar with the area and don't know the legend of the longerdale lights um they see a light on a hillside which they think is that someone in distress? Is it a? Has it? Is it an air, aircraft that's crashed? Is it someone that's lost that's sending up distress flares? So they've phoned the police, and of course the police then call Mountain Rescue. Um, Mountain Rescue teams have been up there dozens of times um, looking for um, any any trace of, of um, people in distress, and they've never found anyone. That's so it's a continuing mystery, and this has been going on since at least the 1950s. Yeah, and I, we've got some uh, old newspaper clippings here. Oh, I've noticed one here which didn't have a year. There's one there that's actually got a picture of Shining Clough, but shall I bring up the yeah. 1972 one first? Yeah, now this is the one that really fascinated me, um, and I think I came across this while we were doing the archive research. And yeah, this was an account that was published in um, the newsletter of Peak National Park and Peak National Park was only created in the 1950s and the, the youth hostel that I mentioned at Croden, that was only built in I think 1968 um, and um, one of the first Peak Park wardens who covered this area was a guy called Ken Drabble and his wife at the time, Margaret Drabble, um, they were living at Croden Youth Hostel and she was a, a teacher and she used to drive back from West Yorkshire, right over the top of the moors. There's a big repeater television aerial called Home, Home Moss. So she'd drive over this lonely Home Moss road um, and drop down into um, Longdendale. And one night, and I, this was in the summer 
of 1970. Um, she was driving, I'm just reading her account from this story now, she was driving alongside the reservoirs of the Tintwistle to Woodhead Road late on this July night. And it was a really warm summer night, um, dark, and she was driving with the windows of a car wound down. And she says there was a really good moon. It was very warm. I had the car windows open. And suddenly she saw this light come from the top of Bleakler. And it, she said it lit the whole valley for a couple of miles. Um, and it, it was so bright, she was able to turn the headlights of a car off and drive as if it was in daylight. And this was sort wow. of like 11, 12 at night, midnight, after midnight. Um, but then as she, was, as she drove into it, um, it was almost like if you can imagine, like, um, and almost like driving into a, a, um, like a, a white beam of light. And she says that the the air turned cold, and she had to wind the windows up, even though it was July. And she was absolutely terrified, and she said she could see every sort of every sort of detail of the mountains in the distance, um, pin, pinpointed. And, you know, she could sort of see it really, really clearly. Um, and she drove down to the youth hostel, told the people there about it and her husband. And she said afterwards, she asked some of the local farmers if they'd seen anything. And she said they were really reluctant to talk about it. But she got the impression that they did know something. Um, so about a year later, um, all the people at the Crowden Youth Hostel saw a very similar light from streaming across the valley. And they all went out. And they thought it um, again. They thought it might have been an aircraft that had crashed on the top of the mountain. Um, so um, um, Barbara Drabble's husband Ken, who was the, the chief Peak Park warden, was actually there, and he saw the light. And he thought, "Well, we'll go up." And he got the, he got in a Land Rover, and he got these massive gas-powered searchlights. Um, went up there on the moor, took a team with him. Um, when they got onto the moor, they had these searchlights on searching around to see if they could find something. And, and, he, and he was in radio contact with the people down in the valley. And they said that the searchlights that he was using were just like a little pinpoint of light seen from the valley. And yet this mysterious light had absolutely filled the entire valley. So wow. it's like completely inexplicable. And after that, um, Barbara then went, uh, and spoke to some of the people in the valley again, some of the farmers, and they did actually admit that, yes, they had seen it, that it came regular, they didn't know what it was, something supernatural, and that it caused um, ice to form when it came in the summer, and that they'd lost, some of these farmers had actually lost livestock, that sheep had been frozen by this mysterious light when it came, and but they were re really reluctant to talk about it. So, I remember interviewing Barbara um, and Sean Wood and Michael Aspel um, did a, a program on this in which I was interviewed and they interviewed Ken Drabble, they interviewed Barbara Drabble and it was part of a series that was shown Strange But True, I think it was called in the 1990s, um, yeah. which may be findable somewhere online. But wow. it was one of the most mysterious things that I've ever um investigated and i've investigated as you know some very mysterious things yeah absolutely <laughs> but to me um it, it's classic earth light and and that whole valley is heavily faulted and you've got all the sort of quartz rock and the the, the, the sort of conditions described in in the research as being the sort of thing the, the perfect conditions where you would expect these kinds of lights to occur and the very fact that um, it only happens occasionally. You know, you'll get like an outbreak where people will see things relatively regularly, maybe just once or twice a year, but they'll see it regularly for a period of time, and then there'll be nothing for 20 or 30 years. And then maybe there'll be a few sightings again. And, and Paul Devereux's theory is that that's because what you've got is like a buildup of sort of tension in um in the geology and rather than having a full-scale earthquake where all this energy is dissipated really quickly what you're getting is a slow release of energy and maybe electrons are sort of i don't know um interacting with the landscape with water with the reservoirs because obviously if you've, the reservoirs are full you've got more tension on the geology who knows but it's it's an intriguing story
Definitely. Just going to highlight a couple of comments here. Andrew Clark just said, "Strange but true" is on YouTube. I was watching the Longnandale Lights episode ah, earlier today. Well, great. I'm going to send, send dig, a link dig. to that. Yeah, if you could, I'd love to see it again. Please, like DM me on Instagram or Twitter. All the links are in in the description. I'd love to find that. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. Um, I've got a couple of questions here. Karen, Karen Alexander says, "Have there been any reports of this classification of lights affecting machinery?" such as cars or tractors? Um, yeah, I think there are. I think if you read um, Earthlights, there are some examples of, of people saying that engines have cut out, that kind of thing. The sort of thing that um, known as car stops in, right. in ufology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, um, the thing about that is um, there is a, um, a, a possibility that in some of these cases, if you were confronted by something like one of these um, bizarre light phenomena, you would be so shocked and so taken aback that maybe you know you'd, you'd, you'd stall the car, so it's, <laughs> or you'd, you'd, the ignition had, had, you know, quite naturally. I've done this myself, and I've seen something unfamiliar, and uh, oh my god, you know, and the car stopped. How would you know whether that was something that had been caused externally or as a result of your own actions because you're in this unfamiliar situation? Yeah, but I, I don't. See. I don't think Barbara yeah. Drabble was suggesting that her car. Um, lost energy or anything like that or the engine cut out when she saw this thing I think what really stands out in that story, I mean there's many things, but the, the fact that the lights were cold and formed ice whereas if you think of plasma I mean, I mean I'm I'm not a scientist. I hate to tell everyone, but you'd always, I'd associate heat with plasma you know, a build of something, you know, so that's really bizarre that But there is a know. thing called cold plasma Apparently, hmm. and, and one okay. of the, the one of the theories that um, I read recently, and I think I put it in the Fortune Times article that I wrote on the um, the lights in Colombia. There was a there was I think it's a, a scientist from um, Italy who's come up with this really elaborate theory about Hestalen, um, all linking the geology of the valley, and in, in that he he's convinced that the Hestalen Valley forms like a natural battery. In that you, I don't. I'm not a physicist. I don't understand this, but um, there's certain kinds of rocks in one side of the valley that interact with rocks on the other side of the valley, and you've got like a river with copper deposits in it, and it effectively creates a battery which creates light. And he's actually experimented and, and been able to light a, um, um, a a small electricity bulb um, using this sort of battery effect in Hestalen. So who knows? That's interesting because that resonates with what we looked at in Colombia. One of the mountain mm. peaks sits in a negative charge, the other in a positive. And I think the river between them is sulfur-based. That's right. Yeah, I'm just looking at it here. It's a guy called Jada Monari, and he works in uh, Italy, a radio astronomy uh, scientist. And he said um, he believes, this is Hestalen, that wow. the valley's unusual geology functions as a natural battery with two distinctly different types of rocks acting as the anode and the cathode. Um, the valley has rocks rich in iron and zinc on one side, um, and on, on the other side of the river are rich in copper. So you've got the river Hestia between them, and the electrolyte that activates the circuit is provided by sulfur that leaches into the river. Now, he and a colleague have actually tested the theory in the valley and they were able to produce sufficient current to light a lamp and they believe the battery produces iron bubbles that can rise from the valley and move along the electrical field generated in the humid atmosphere above it so maybe maybe there's something similar going on in longmandale um, quite possibly yeah the barbara drabble isn't the only person who's had a, a weird experience um involving a car because it, I, I don't know whether you can find this this the story from 1995 that was um reported i think i sent you a, a scan of this um vinnie which, which was the the um the young woman called um laverne marshall this is a story that was in the um the local newspaper glossop um, advertiser and this is a, a very bizarre story and this is at night in february 1995 um, and this lady from Glossop called Laverne Marshall, she had dropped her son off at um, Heathrow. He, no, she'd taken her son to Heathrow Airport and she'd driven all the way back after he got his flight with her daughter, Stacy, and Stacy's baby. 
and they were in the back of the car and they lived in Glossop. So they went up the M1, they, they took the M62 across the Pennines and then dropped into Longendale Valley. And this was really late at night. And they just dropped into the valley to a place called, near a place called the Devil's Elbow. <laughs> Again, these weird place names that seem to reflect yeah. the fact that odd things have happened there before. And the bizarre thing about this was they, they saw lights, but they were inside the car. <laughs> so just suddenly, in the middle of nowhere, this bunch of lights appeared in the side of the car, like four or five lights, all sort of moving around the dashboard, almost like soldiers drilling. And they were sort of moving around in the car as they were driving. <laughs> and as you can imagine, they were absolutely terrified. Stopped, stopped and started the car at different points, and the... They, as, when they got to the outskirts of Blossom, these lights just vanished. And because there'd been stories in the local press about it, they'd, they'd said nothing because no, they thought nobody would believe them. And it was only when stories about the Longdendale lights started um, to be to be published. As you can see there's a little rag out in the corner. Um, Tony Dodd, who was very active um, with the Yorkshire UFO Society at the time, he he was investigating something mysterious in one of the local reservoirs, and this prompted Laverne Marshall to come forward. And I, again, I went and interviewed her. I've got her on tape talking about this. And she was genuinely terrified. And I've never heard a story like that. I mean, I know there are stories about UFO abductions where people see a light outside the car and then they have a period of missing time. But these were lights. They didn't see anything outside the car. These were strange sort of luminous um, balls of light that appeared inside the car, and they were like whizzing around and moving around inside the car. So wow. <laughs> strange that it was in Wanderdale. That's strange, and, and, and that case does. You know, uh, let me start again. Back in earlier this year, when George Knapp and Colin Kelleher released their book um, talking about Orsap, the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, they mm. did talk about a case where these strange orbs entered a car. Very, very oh, similar they? to the yeah, very right. similar. But they right, did see they did see them in a field, and they came towards the car, entered the car, and caused health effects to the driver and stuff. So that that's really fascinating. But I think one thing also is that the Longendale lights. The first case was this huge light that lit up a couple of miles of the valley, and now we're like almost talking about small orb-sized objects. It's just so strange how yeah the differences that that, that are there. It, it it just runs the whole gamut. You know, there's everything um, that you've got, like people who've seen like searchlight beams that seem to sort of come out of the ground. You've got um, like a string of lights, sort of purple lights. You've got, uh, again, back to the colors. What you don't get are the red lights, which are what the mountain rescue teams are expecting if people are firing distress flares. So if someone was out, uh, you know, pranking and hoaxing, you know, you'd, you'd expect the, the lights to be red, but they, they never are. They're always sort of purple or blue, which is a very odd color for yeah. a light. Um, and there are, there are, I mean, there are some conventional explanations for this. I mean, one that we haven't mentioned, which has got to um, be a factor, is the fact that the Longdendale Valley is on one of the um, the approaches for aircraft going into Manchester Airport. Now, Manchester Airport is one of the biggest international airports in, in England. And the, if you're up there at night, and I've been up there numerous times, they're constantly coming in. They're on a the flight path, and you can see them stacking up. Yeah. Um, so it's quite possible that some of these sightings have been caused by people who perhaps are unfamiliar with the terrain, maybe visitors from outside the area who aren't familiar with the fact that they're on um, this flight path into Manchester. And maybe you know, unusual conditions where you've got mist or temperature inversions and they've seen something that looks as if it's very, very close when it's actually quite um, far away or, or at a higher altitude. But again, that doesn't explain um, the folklore, the stories that date back before there was an airport at Manchester. And it doesn't explain this, the account um, that we've been talking about, you know, the one with the, the valley filled with an entire bluish white light that wouldn't be a an, an aircraft that caused that no um there are electricity pylons running through the valley and it's possible that um some of the some of the reports are caused by you know um electricity sparking sent elmo's fire i think it's called that kind yeah. of thing is a possibility 
Um, there's been um, some, um, there was a, a physicist at Manchester University um, who got interested in this, but he was he was um, interested in ball lightning, and he thought some of the some of the sightings could be explained as ball lightning. But again, ball lightning is very specific. You know, it's yep. it's a it's a it's a it's been seen in many many different forms, and and ball lightning does appear inside moving objects i mean it's been seen inside aircraft there's a there's a classic example um several examples where people have actually seen lightning balls moving down the, cor the interior of an aircraft you can imagine how terrifying that is yeah. um so maybe it's possible that um something like that could appear inside a car uh, and then you've got all the sort of um the plasma the, the cold plasma and all this is where we start um shading into the uap um, theories and Ron Haddo in the Condine report, he talks about earth lights and, and yeah. plasmas as, um, as as being the source of some of the UAP reports. And I think what but is why what, this particular area? Yeah, well, all of these different areas, Hestal and Longdendale, Columbia, and the one thing that is that ha uh, they all have in common is that they all have these variations that there's not just one light phenomena it's like you said the strings of lights there's lights in the air a lot of the time there's lights on the ground and it's that's what makes it even more mysterious that it's not consistent uh you know with one type of light and that it's it's i think that's what's so fascinating and in and in columbia hestal and there are stories of people seeing ufos I and mean, a lot of these are anecdotal and but they're saying that you know they're seeing physical craft so that adds to the allure let's say of it being something generally not of this earth but yeah yeah it's the light, the light she saw on the mountain in colombia is it la pena Juica? is that how you pronounce la pena de Juica. yeah yeah um that there was i mean like you explained to me really well when, when we talked about this um, there was no other source for that because you were you were literally seeing it against the face of the mountain and that's not something that you would get an aircraft. There would be no no one up there with torches, you know, in the middle no. of nowhere. <laughs> no, I mean, and we are so, going back. We are going back to, to kind of just try and recreate it by getting as close as we can to those different areas on the face of the mountain at night time. Mm. And we're going to take torches up there. But, you know, it's only just to fully rule it out 100%. We're 99% sure, of course, but without actually physically doing that experiment, we wouldn't say, you know, 100% because we like to, you know, do it properly. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was crazy. And and that's the thing. Some of the photographs that Ashley Cowie had taken in the year or two prior to our investigation were strange red lights in the sky or blue plasma streaks in different areas on the mountain. It wasn't just this one white headlight type uh, ball of light. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Um but jumping back to Longdendale, I'm going to bring in, bring up this image of the Devil's Elbow just to give an idea of the the roads and stuff because mm. I drove down this road, so you can see it's a single you know lane road twisting through the valley, and I drove down this twice uh, in October, once in the daytime and then again in the evening coming back and. Once you've passed the few lights of the kind of village and and that you and you're driving along the side of one of the valleys, it's so dark and bleak. And mm. I was aware, obviously, of the Longdendale lights, so I was looking out everywhere. But you had this sense of oh, you wouldn't want to be out here at night, really. And so, yeah, it's a strange old place, that's for sure. And and the 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 the, the naming of it, the Devil's Elbow, because um, the traditional one of the traditional names for the lights in Longdendale are Devil's Bonfires. Right, and I heard various people describing them as that. So there's obviously a link with, um, you know, the evil. You know, the the traditional sort of idea that, you know, if you saw these lights, it was the devil or 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 demons who were sort of dancing in the night or trying to lure you into the darkness. And this is where you get the Will of the Wisp stories from, because this this the, the Will of the Wisp was supposed to be a some kind of imp or fairy that people saw. Um, when they were out on on their own in darkness, and you'd think it was a lantern carried by someone, and people would follow it, and the more you followed it, the more it would move away, and then you'd end up trapped in a bog or quicksand or something like that. So you can see how these stories began to link these mysterious lights with evil and with you know evil spirits. 
the, hence the naming of the Devil's Elbow. Yeah. And again, with the Devil's Elbow, there was a, a chap I interviewed who must now be dead because he was in his late 80s, early 90s uh, when I visited him, and that would be 1992. And he was the last um, railway worker who, who was used to work in the signal box in the valley because there's a massive tunnel that was that was that was made under Longdendale Valley, linking Manchester with Sheffield in the 19th century. And there were hundreds of people worked on this, many of them um, Irish laborers who'd come across just to work on the project. A lot of them are buried in the little chapel at Woodhead. Um, and for some reason, they pulled the trains and it's now got an electricity pylon running through it. <laughs> but he was the last of the railway men who worked on there. And he lived in a, in a, a group of cottages in the middle of nowhere. And loads of people said, oh, you need to go and see John Davis. Um, and he, he was about 88 when I saw him. And he'd actually had a most bizarre encounter at the Devil's Elbow one night. And he was coming back on an old 1950s motorbike. Uh, it must have been late 1950s or 60s. And he, he, he came around that bend, as you were seeing there, and there was a big full moon. And he said he felt all the hair at the back of his head rising up before he actually saw anything. And he stopped his motorbike, he said, just before he got to the bend, and he could hear something coming across the road. And he said it was this huge, intensely black object that seemed to sort of come out of the moor and like almost like um, moved over the road and dropped into the valley below. And it was just so dark and black, he couldn't see anything. He couldn't see over it or beyond it. Almost, And he described it as like a huge black slug. And it's almost <laughs> as if it was coming out of the mountain and dropping into the valley. And he sort of let this thing sort of descend and then carried on on his way back to his railway cottages. So you've got almost the opposite of a light there. You've got something mm. that's got no light at all, as if it's sucked all the light into it like a mini black hole. Yeah. So there's obviously something really bizarre going on there. And that's why that particular um, bend in the road has become known as the devil's elbow because if people have had those kinds of weird experiences year after year after year the place has become associated with the supernatural yeah it's fascinating and let's let's go back because you mentioned the rescue teams in there and there's a document that you sent me which i think is really uh worth showing as well so I'll bring that up. Oh, is this the mountain rescue team log? It yeah. is, yeah. And this gives like an, an idea of various sightings, let's say. So if I... Yeah, this is excellent. Now. Yeah, so th this is when we were doing Project Pennine, this is what we got back from Lossop Mountain Rescue Team. And they'd gone through their records right back to the nineteen early 1970s. And as you can see here, they've, they've logged all these sightings. So... so September 1973, sighting of a red flare. Oh, this was a red flare. Sorry, I'm, I stand corrected. Um, but this is reported by a motorist as he drove towards Blossop. Um, the B6105 is where the devil, devil's elbow is. Right. Um, and that appeared to be above um, Clough Edge. Rescue team searched Peakneys and Blossop. Low, low negative result. Second one, 1977. This was a police sergeant that was um, coming over the Snake Pass. And he saw a flare rising directly behind Shire Hill. So the same direction as the first sighting, but from a different, um, he was looking from a different direction. So when all these are triangulated, they're all in a similar area. The yeah. one in March, February, March 1980, was um, the actual team leader of Lossop Mountain Rescue Team who actually provided this info. That was his own personal sighting of a large searchlight. This is on the top of the moor. And like he says there, vehicle access to where he saw this light was impossible. It's just in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't take a car up there. Um, so what was it? Mm. Um, then there was another sighting in 1982, a green flare, not the sort of normal colour you would you would let off if you were in if you're in trouble. Um, again, um, bearing taken taken from the location, several small parties from the rescue team went up there, found nothing. Same year, later in the same year, October, sighting of a flare rising between James Thorne, lower shelf stones, again by a police officer. Again, a search team went out, didn't find anything. And then there's some um, additional info, which is really interesting. The last sighting raised interest in the phenomenon of the lights in Longdendale. 
lots of people then came forward with um, sightings recalled from previous years, Barbara Drabble being one of them. And he then says these have taken the form of searchlights, flares, strings of lights crossing the hillside, ghostly Roman legions have been reported in the vicinity of Torside Castle. And quite intriguing um, mention then, he says that there have been other sightings of mysterious lights in the same area from one or two people who refuse to discuss the matter any further. I mean, very odd. Why? <laughs> Why would they refuse to discuss it? Um, and there'd been so many sightings at that point, this was in the late 90s, that the police stopped, didn't bother ringing the rescue team anymore. Because wow. <laughs> <laughs> it, it obviously it costs a lot of money to get the mountain rescue team up there with Land Rovers, helicopters, searchlights, all this kind of thing. And he says, we would expect a red fl flare to be fired by someone in distress. And in all the cases, with the exception of that first one in 1973, the lights or flares have been white or green. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. And am I right in saying that for a while there was a webcam upon the Wardsdale? Yeah, so this is um, late 1990s when I was sort of actively investigating this and various other people were interested. And Michael Aspel did his programme. There was It got a lot of attention. In fact, I think there was even a double-page spread in the Daily Mail <laughs> about it. Wow. Um, and this, um, a lady called Debbie Fair, um, who was, I think she worked on the radio station in Glossop. Um, this was when um, people was getting online for the first time and um, people had webcams. This was a completely new phenomenon. And she thought, well, why don't I stick one of these in my bedroom window? Because she lived in Glossop overlooking um, the, 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 the area where the lights were seen. And I think she might have been one of the first people to do this. And she had a live webcam looking out over Longdendale Valley, which was, I think it was in existence for two or three years. Not Nothing yeah. was ever odd was ever seen on this right. webcam. But um, it was just an interesting... Um, little experiment she did and i know there's been various other people in other parts of the world that have done similar things there's a team isn't there in north carolina um, where you've got the brown mountain lights and they've set up some kind of live webcam I again i don't know whether this is still live but they had three different cameras in different parts of brown mountain where very similar lights to longdendale lights have been seen and i think they did actually succeed in capturing something that was genuinely anomalous yeah, the image that I used for the thumbnail, I think, was a brown mountain light. I'm just going to yeah. bring up my screen. I've got a couple of other. Uh, so I think this is the one I used. But Yeah, that looks like it. Yeah. There's these kind of streaks with, you know, purpley, bluey mm -hmm. kind of, you know, these are very similar to what's been captured in Colombia, especially, um, and Hestalen as well. Um, yeah. So I just think they're absolutely fascinating. And the scene in every part of the world, in in Australia, there is this thing called the Min Min Lights in um, Queensland, yep. an area in Queensland. Queensland, And I, I mean, I've only just sort of skimmed the surface with that, but there's mountains of literature and accounts of people who've seen these things. And I think um, the Aboriginal pe peoples of Australia, they've got traditions about them. Um, again, this, this the scene the of Min -Min. spirits. Yeah, this is an example of the Min Min Lights. I think Paul Devereux has actually written about these as well in Earthlights, in his Earthlights book. I tried, I tried to reach out to Paul, um, no response, and then I found out that he doesn't really give interviews because he's worried about what may be construed by the the media, and they may, you know, uh, sort of pick apart his interviews to fit a certain narrative. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but you, you know him. Maybe you can have a word with him sometime. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm seeing him in the new year, so I'll see if I can persuade him to um, come on your show, Vinny. That'd be great. We'll do this all over again, and he could take us through some more, more sort of aspects oh, of it. I'm, I'm sure he'd be able to add a lot more to um, to what I've, what I've been able to summarise today. But, I mean, I think one thing we can say for sure um, about these things is that they are some kind of natural phenomenon. I mean, I don't know what I mean by natural. What I mean is it's something connected to the Earth. It's not yeah. something that's coming here from outer space or other dimensions. It's something that's always been here, probably been here long before humans were around. And one of the interesting theories, um, I think I came across this again in a scientific article. There was, there was some guy that was writing in New Scientist, and he was talking about 
will-o'-the-wisp and spook lights and he was saying he was linking them to something he's called extremophiles you know that they've found um phosphine or evidence of phosphine on venus um and he's he his theory is that some of these mysterious lights might be examples of some kind of sort of very sort of basic life forms that exist in the atmosphere because there are all these stories about um um that people used to um have about um ufos being some kind of living organism rather than a machine yeah and and for anyone any any of those people who are watching who've seen the film nope um that was in the cinemas i've, I've forgotten the name of the of the director now it's a very famous director from america and the whole um premise of it i don't want to give you any spoilers is it's it's basically a farmer in california who is being plagued by ufo sightings and the ufo turns out to be like a living organism that's that's up to no good i'm not going to say anymore because i don't want to put any spoilers for those who haven't seen the film but it was obviously drawing upon these these ideas and beliefs that and this is something that um charles fort actually wrote about he said maybe some of these lights that people have seen are living creatures who inhabit parts of the atmosphere and occasionally they'll descend to the ground and that's where what people describe as these mysterious lights who knows yeah and one thing that really uh, paul Devereux takes it even further where he says yes they could be natural phenomena but he then adds consciousness into the to the equation mm. so they could yes they could be natural earth lights but there may be a consciousness aspect to it, which that again is a whole new ball game of is it some other non-human entity that's aware yeah. of of you know, and that's just fascinating. I think that's why I like talking about it and looking into it as it as it relates to the UFO subject. But I mean, um, people think that when they see these lights, and this is the will of the wisp thing again, that as they move towards them, the the, the light moves away, or that there's people who've sort of had torches or flashlights and they've they've directed the light at what they're seeing and and these things seem to react but bear in mind that human beings are electromagnetic creatures you know we've we've got um, electrical fields around us so if you're in the vicinity of say i don't know something like a plasma it's going to react to you because you've got an electrical field so you know maybe that explains how people sort of interpret what they're seeing as if it's something alive as if it's intelligent as if it's moving in an intelligent way when mm. maybe it's moving in in connection with your movements who knows that, so I, I many theories yeah i think that's something that paul Devereux expands upon in in his book yeah absolutely um and again, everyone should check out Earthlights. But like I said, this is the second one, Earthlights Revelation. It's fascinating. goes into cases from all around the world, from all different time periods, so many theories and, and things like that. Before we finish off, I've got a couple of questions from people just uh, I'd like to, to uh, acknowledge. So Tino says, hello, Vinny and Dave. Is there any activity over Saddleworth Moor area? Yes, is the answer to that. Um, I do remember when I was doing the Project Pennine um, research, th there were several um, cases. We didn't look into this because we got so di distracted by the stuff that we got from Glossop Mountain Rescue Team. But there is there was another mountain rescue team a bit further north who covered Saddleworth, and we did get some accounts from them of very similar lights that had been seen over Saddleworth Moor. There's a very famous sighting. I think it's in one of Jenny Randall's books. Um, the road that goes over um, Saddleworth Moor, that come, I think it's the, it comes out of Oldham and goes up onto the moors towards the um, M62. There's, there was a case there in the 1970s where a guy, um, I think I think the guy's name was Alan Fallows. It's, for some reason that comes to me. And he was driving over there late one night and he saw this like a ball of light, white light that sort of came down, crossed over the road in front of him. Um like a huge meteorological balloon but it wasn't a meteorological balloon it was like internally luminous that moved across the road and vanished off in the direction of longdendale and and i think the the mountain rescue team um involved um had been called out to some very similar sightings and he, he was absolutely petrified this this guy again reported it to the police so that whole area north from longdendale up into west yorkshire there are there are similar stories uh, and you tend to get sort of outbreaks where you, the things will be seen regularly for a few years and then nothing will be seen for decades and then things will be seen again 
which again yeah. does suggest it's something natural that's causing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple more. Um, Elena, this I mean, this is a, a big question. Is there any way a technologically advanced civilization could have used the natural battery to power multidimensional technologies, potentially through interaction with consciousness? I guess it's a... <laughs> I've no Maybe. idea. I, I can't answer that one, I'm afraid. No, I, I mean, this that... is... When I was talking earlier on, sorry to interrupt, about the, the red light and the blue shift light that mm. we saw in Colombia, that that has been associated with dimensional shift. And so I guess that could, you know... Can we say it for sure? No. Can we say it's not? No. So... <laughs> well, I can, only, I can only talk... I mean, that question is phrased in a very sort of modern technological sort of way but as a folklorist i can only sort of answer it in a sort of folkloric way in that people in the past who saw these things thought they were seeing things from other dimensions i.e you know um people who, who in the past who believed in there being another world like fairyland and like they came across these lights revolving lights and things and there are the stories about people being dragged into fairy rings and finding themselves in a, in like fairyland. Again, in their own way, they were talking about um, going almost down a portal into another world. So we mm. talk about this now in a scientific and technological way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then finally, Yoni says, probably an absolute ridiculous question, but has there been research with these lights looking at bacteria or single cell-like creatures? Uh, there you go. Yes, I mean that's that's the theory that I mentioned, the extremophiles um, thing. Okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the reference. It was it was published in a in a scientific journal, uh, something like Nature or New Scientist. Um, and um, ah, here we go. Yeah, 2014 paper in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society by a guy called Howell Edwards, and I think you can download this if you if you Google for it. And he's talking about the will of the wisp, and um, Head Edwards um, he's, he, he, he compares the elusive nature of these lights with recent discoveries of organisms called extremophiles that exist deep in the ocean, in the ocean, and in parts of Antarctica. And he speculates that similar organis organisms might be found on Mars and Europa, which is obviously. The two of the two of the places where we're at, where, where NASA and some of the, uh, are looking for evidence of um, life outside the Earth, um, they've actually found traces of phosphine and methane, um, which again would suggest very basic life forms. So you know maybe there is a connection there. I don't know. It's intriguing, no. isn't it? This is what keeps me um, involved in this subject because it, it's it just opens your mind up to all these amazing possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more I research and the more you come across these different aspects of the phenomena, more questions are raised, which makes, you know, more research, more work and, and just it just sucks you in even further. But that I mean, that was a great conversation. And, and, and yeah, I mean, we could probably talk about all the different cases uh, throughout the world. But I think, you know, it was good to pick on something local to us as well. I mean, it's making me consider maybe next year going out to spend a few days in Longrendale wild camping or something. And it would be worth it, wouldn't it? And if it were possible to install a, um, you know, like a, um, a webcam somewhere in, in the right zone, you know, like you see on Springwatch, where they have these little cameras and they, they detect movement and you get all these like foxes and things that are, that are picked up. Why couldn't yeah. we do that in Longdendale and have something that's looking for these these lights? No, absolutely. That's what we plan on doing in Columbia next year. We're getting some trail cams, some sense, mm -hmm. motion sensor trail cams set up on top of the mountain just in case there are humans up there at night yeah. trying to, you know, con us and that. So, yeah, because that yeah, would we'll at to... least eliminate some of the possible explanations. Well, I'll tell you what we could do, Dave. We could go there. We could go up there next year and I could do one of these, but like a 12 hour live stream. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd have to wrap up warm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, nah, I don't think we get that many viewers after a few hours. That's for sure. But anyway, <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on as always. Um, before we go, I just want to say to everybody, if you wanted to read David's article on the light phenomena in 14 times, it's only available in physical form. It's not available online it's in the september 2022 issue which can be ordered online you know back issues 
Uh, for anybody that wants to watch our uh, documentary series from Columbia Phenomenology, the link is in the description now. And also there is a 25% off discount code, which is only available for a limited time, I think till the end of the year. So only a few more days. Um, and we are going back out in April next year to continue that. So I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, show on Earthlights. Um, like I said, it's certainly a, a really interesting aspect of the phenomena that's really captured me. And yeah, that's about it, I think. Thank you and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy when New Year, everyone. Arrived, yeah, when it See gets you all here. in 2023. Yeah, thank you to everybody in the live chat, as always, for being here. Everyone that listens or watches after the fact, thank you also. And I'll see you now. Yeah, I think this was the last show of 2022. I'll be back in the new year. I've got all sorts coming up, so go and check it out. Go and follow me on all my socials. Links to follow David as well on his blog, his Twitter are in the description as well. I think that covers it, guys. So for now, take care, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Bye.